Apple presents Meet the Author. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, host of MSNBC's The Cycle, and author of Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, Torre, and tonight's guest, award-winning travel writer and actor, Andrew McCarthy. Well, I thought I would uh, we'd begin with, I will just read a short passage from the book, and then uh, we'll chat a little bit, and then maybe we'll take some questions if there are any. Anything? Hi, Bernie. <laughs> So this is a book about um, trying to come to terms with everything and everyone I love by running as far away from them as I possibly could get. And I found myself in the Amazon at one point, and I was at a market. And I turn a corner and see an armadillo sliced open on a table beside a dozen butchered turtles. Further on, there are bananas, carrots, beans, and potatoes, monkey skulls, and chickens and a stall with a dozen long machetes hanging like wind chimes. A jaguar skin is stretched taut, selling for $20. There's an entire dusty street dedicated to charcoal, and further on, snails the size of grapefruits, butcher blocks with bloody, dripping cuts of meat, huge mounds of loose tobacco leaves, barrels filled with olives, sneakers, and pig parts, coca leaves and anaconda skins, caiman tails and jungle beer, and there is the hallucinogen ayahuasca, Yucca root is everywhere. The market sprawls over a dozen city blocks and tumbles down to the river, where it continues on boats. Rain begins to pour down, and primitive tarp roofs overhead displace water until they're too full and collapse. The rain stops as suddenly as it began, and the sun comes out, and the ground steams. Then it's raining again, and then the sun is out. It makes no difference. I come upon a man beside shelves of bottles filled with a golden brown syrupy liquid, rumpa calzones, underwear breaker, the label reads. Good for honeymooners, the small man with the wispy mustache promises. I pick up a bottle. I hold it up to the light, tilting it first one way and then the other. The thick goo oozes slowly from side to side. The small man smiles at me. He's nodding and grinning. His eyes are dancing. He knows something that I don't yet know. He wants me to have this. He wants me to be happy. I put down the bottle and thank him. He holds up a finger. Espera, wait, he says. He lifts a mostly empty bottle down from the shelf and pours half an inch into a dirty plastic cup and offers it to me. I once drank shark liver oil on Montserrat. It tasted like what I imagine motor oil must taste like. But this, despite the not dissimilar texture, has a deep bouquet, an oozing, clinging, pungent quality. I have no way of knowing what's in it. All I know is that when I put down the empty cup, I want more. Mmm, I say. And now we're both nodding our heads up and down and grinning. I tell my new friend that I'm alone. Soy solo, I explain and shrug. He nods some more, this time knowingly. He shakes my hand with sadness and still nodding. He pats my back and sends me on my way. And so that's a little bit. Nice. Did it take you back to that moment when you lived that? Yeah, I think of that quite a lot, actually. I love markets like that. They're very vivid and very of a place and very specific. So I love, I love markets, yeah. Uh, so obviously we know you as an actor. How did you get into being a writer? Yeah, it's a weird career trajectory, isn't it? <laughs> I, uh, I'd been traveling a great deal as an actor, and then as an antidote to, antidote to 
to acting, I would often just run off and travel the world. And I found I, the more I did that, the more I felt like myself, the more at home in my skin I was in a way that I never was when I was acting and in my regular life. And it became a bigger and bigger part of my life. And I began sort of jotting down little notes and taking notes when, where I went. And I would write little stories. I tried to keep a journal, but I found that very sort of indulgent and silly and repetitive, and I would just talk about my feelings, and I thought, this is embarrassing to read. That's Why what would, writing yeah. is, talking yeah. about your feelings. And, uh, but I, anyway, so I, I started writing more incidents of what happened to me as an actor, so I wrote down dialogue and encounters and scenes with people. And I did that for about 10 years, and I would just throw it in my drawer when I came home, and then eventually I decided I wanted to start doing that for some reason, and so I started, I met an editor at a magazine, and I bamboozled him into finally letting me write, and... <laughs> It just took on a life of its own, so I've been doing that on the side in this sort of parallel life for about 10 years now. So your writing is all connected with travel, right? It's all travel writing? Well, it has been up until, up until the book, you know? I don't consider really the book a, a travel book at all. I consider it much more of a, a, a memoir in the sense that when I travel, I, I really travel not to go to a place, but to a place in me. And I travel to some people, I think the Joan, great Joan Didion line that I misquote is, I write so that I know what I'm thinking. I travel so that I can know what I'm feeling. And then I come home and I write it down and it illuminates what it is for me. So it's not so much at all about the destination as it is about what the destination does to me. And you know, so I answer questions. And the question I had in this book, that's the event of the book really, is I was getting married and I was excited about that. And, and yet I couldn't do it. I had real ambivalence about it. I was with a woman I love. We had a child, a home we love, and yet part of me is always wanting to flee. And so I said, what's the deal with that? What is that aspect of me? And what does that have to do with my manhood and my fear of commitment and my anxieties and ambivalence about intimacy, I guess? And so that's, I set out on the road to sort of answer that question. There's something amazing about travel and the way you can, I mean, you're sort of talking about this already, the way you can unlock something out of yourself by putting yourself out of your normal confines and really sort of discover something. And there's nothing else in life that can unlock those parts of you the way that travel can. Well, that's my experience. I mean, some people go to therapy and others like to go have coffee with the girls and sit and chat. Your peeps? <laughs> and I love... I find that does, I uncover and unlock things in my life through traveling, yeah, and the way I see the world and perceive the world, you know, by laying myself open to the world and getting out of what you said, getting out of my familiar routines where I am, think I'm in full control. When I lay myself open to the world, I'm a much more vulnerable person and more accessible to who I am as a person, and I think that's all to the good. Where are some of the places you've been that have really excavated something about you? I know for me, the further away I go, when I go to Africa, when I go to Brazil, I really sort of sort of figure out something new about me as opposed to the shorter journeys, which teach you a little bit less. You know, the more you push yourself out of your comfort zone, the more you can learn. So where did you really learn about you? Totally. I, I agree with that completely. And the further away from home I go, the more at home I feel. That's always been my experience. The first time I had a real transformative experience of travel, I was walking across Spain on the Camino de Santiago, the old pilgrim's route, you know, and I found that a miserable experience. I was walking for weeks and alone, trudging across Spain, till I finally had one of those embarrassing kind of breakdowns that people have occasionally. And 
it just burst through a big wall of fear that I carried around through most of my life. And it sort of punctured that balloon. And it started to become my sort of liberation from, from a fear that had really dominated me in a way that I was unaware of before that. And that started my travel, really. But I was recently in Sudan, and I found that, you know, people said to me, are you crazy? You're going to Sudan? What's the, why? And I'm like, I want to see what's going on there. I mean, we hear these, you say, here's Sudan, and you just cringe and hear, you know. Uh, so I went and found an extraordinary place full of open, generous, loving people, you know. I was in Mozambique not long ago, and it was chaos, and I loved it. Yeah, I find the, the less infrastructure I'm surrounded in, the better I'm able to have my own internal infrastructure, if you know what I mean, and have access to it. Yeah, it has to get messy. It has to get uncomfortable. You have to eat things you're not ready for, and it has to be a bed that's a little too hard, and the room is a little too cold, and maybe some of it, while you're going through it, you don't like it, but you accept it because it's travel, and then you finish it, and you're like, that oh, was that extraordinary. Was <laughs> yeah, I mean, particularly if you're, I'm writing about it, I find when things go wrong, I've got a story. But from a personal point of view, yeah, I, I, I love a soft landing, but then after I'm in that luxury, beautiful hotel for two days, I just go, what the hell am I doing here? I came to be in this place, and all I am is in this lovely hotel, and I find myself getting very resentful of the people at the hotel and everything. So the further away from comfort I tend to get, the more comfortable I become, you know, and the further, the longer I'm traveling, the more I'm willing to do that. Yeah, for sure it has to get uncomfortable before it gets good. And you went on this journey to see about you as a commitment phobe or a person who could deal with commitment, right? I mean, because you, you needed to flee and you wanted to see what that was about even though you were very happy at home. Yeah, I mean, I suffered from that total, I love you, I've got to go syndrome. You know, and I really want, I, the story for the, the idea for the book came to me, I was sitting in the back of a cab going down to Patagonia, which is 10,000 miles away at the bottom of the planet. And we had just decided to get married, my then fiance and I, and we were feeling lovey-dovey and close the way people do in those, when they make those decisions. And I'm sitting in the back of the cab feeling all sort of weepy like that I'm leaving and I'm really sad to be going. And at the same moment, I was absolutely thrilled to be leaving and going alone and going off. And I was, I didn't know how to reconcile those two aspects of myself. Both seem very valid and very real and equally like me. And I didn't, if I was going to get married, which I knew that I was, because I, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a sort of will he or won't he get married, it's sort of a how will he get married. And so that's what really the event of the book is, sort of trying to uncover that, find an answer to that. Traveling alone is a whole different animal than traveling with other people. You're really out on a limb then, and it really does force you to try to figure out something about yourself and make your own way as you move through each step. And well, I don't know if it, for, you're just, you have to figure things out for yourself and about yourself are gonna emerge. You just, I, you have to ask for help, you know? I'm one of those guys at home, I would never ask for directions, I'm that guy. And the minute I'm on the road, uh, I just go, hi, excuse me, sorry, do you speak English? Can you tell me how to, you know, and then we're doing hand signs and then I'm at the guy's house for dinner, you know? and. And those sort of spontaneous moments wouldn't happen if you're in a group. It would never happen. If we go traveling together, we're going to have our experience of each other in the place. And we'll have a great time and a lot of fun and a lot of laughs. But it's an entirely different experience if you're going alone. I don't travel for vacation. I love a good vacation. I love taking my kids and have a nice vacation, which ends up being exhausting if you're taking your kids on vacation. But I, I, Amen. <laughs> but I, when I travel, it's more I'm going to have an experience 
And so that's an entirely different thing than going to the spa, you know. Where are you going next? I am going to India, to Darjeeling, to do a story for a magazine. And then I'm going down to Brazil, to Salvador de Bahia. Why did this need to be a book and not another magazine article? Well, because the, it's... To me, when you write a magazine article, you're largely writing about place. You try and find a good story hook, but you're really writing about the destination. Ultimately, for a travel magazine, you're selling the destination, hopefully masked in a good story that you're telling. But this was much more of a sort of internal journey, and the only way I knew how to play that out was to do it externally, you know, in 3D, climbing Kilimanjaro or going down the Amazon, that kind of thing. So it was the opposite sort of of a magazine article in that it was really internal. Can you talk about movies a little bit? Yeah, dude. I mean, the movies that you were part of took the teenagers who were their subjects very seriously and very deeply. And I don't really see too many films like that right now that take teenagers and their lives and their feelings really seriously in that same way. Why do you think that has happened? Why has it changed now, or why did we do that? No, no well, well, first, why has it changed now, and then, yeah, why did you do that? I don't know why it's changed that way, and, and, and if it is that way so much, because I don't go to those movies. They don't, there aren't, the coming-of-age movie isn't that of interest but to me. But you're aware of, you know, now they're doing Twilight, when what you guys were doing with John Hughes was really deep and somewhat more substantial. Yeah, I, I, I really can't speak to why they do it now, but, I mean, I do know what you, you were, what you just said, that... I think those movies were the first generation of movies that took young people and their problems deadly seriously, the way you feel when you're 20 and 19 and that everything is so important. I mean, what I wear to this, this prom is really life and death of importance. And I mean, I, I remember when we were making that film at the time, I thought this is the silliest movie I've ever seen about a girl trying to go to a dance. And I mean, who cares? But it really captured something of the urgency and that life and death quality that those things have when you're that young and it, it had a real respect for young people that I don't movies seem a little more those movies are very innocent in a certain way too and very open-hearted I think some of the movies now everybody's very slick and a bit cynical and rotten before they're ripe and that's kind of a cool post postmodern way to be or something we were not post anything we were just like trying to figure it out and unabashedly you know John Hughes was open-hearted enough in a certain way that he was able to explore that. I think that's why his career ended so sort of quickly the way it did. And he then hid behind making silly comedies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles for a while and then retreated completely, was because I think it's difficult to stay that open and that vulnerable and that accessible for that long. And I think you look at it, it was only three or four years really that he made a bunch of movies that were really meaningful to people. And then he was a great entertainer on top of that. But I think that's... But it's quite extraordinary to see a guy who was mid-30s, is that right? When he was making those films and so accurate with the teenage soul. I mean, I don't know if you could do it. I don't think I could be that accurate with the teenage soul now. You know, once you get out of it, you kind of forget it. And well, and I did. I wouldn't have the interest in it. He had an absolute 
complete passion for what was going on. He would ask every day, like, Is this, was this right? Does that sound right? Is that what you think? He was very interested in what kids were doing. He would stop kids on the street who would stop to watch the movie. He'd engage them in conversation. What's up? And he'd talk music with them because, you know, he had a great part of those movies is the soundtrack for all of them, you know? So, and he had a re he was always asking kids, what are you listening to? What are you, what are you, what's going on? And so he loved, he had a real passion for youth in a way that once we get a little older, we sort of, I think because we resent, we've lost it, we sort of criticize it and judge it. And he takes it very seriously, I think even about a movie like Juno, right? Which is sort of a, a child of what he did and it takes the, the that young woman's life very seriously. But there's this way of with dialogue in that movie that is very sort of caricaturish of youth speak and John Hughes never did that no I mean now there's a real savviness and a self-awareness and how am I coming off and I'm presenting myself in a certain way and all that that we just didn't we were never aware of in when we were doing those movies we the culture didn't have that much self-consciousness about it you know we were just doing stuff. I, I remember going on a publicity tour for the movie and I had a pair of white pants and the hem was down and the guy, the interviewer, said to me, is that a conscious choice? Is that a fashion thing you're doing with the pants there? And I was like, what, what do you mean? And I was 22, I lived alone, I didn't know how to sew. And those are the pants I had. Now, that never, you know, someone would have taken me shopping and dressed me up. And so we just didn't have that kind of savvy. Let me go back a second. Did you say that while you were doing Pretty in Pink, you thought it was the silliest thing ever? Yeah, I thought that was a very silly movie. I mean, who? I thought, who was going to care about this movie? Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so are you surprised that several decades later, people still care about the film very much? I'm flabbergasted on a daily basis that people are talking about Pretty in Pink. And not a day goes by in my life when somebody does. I ran into John Cryer the other day who is in Pretty in Pink, obviously, is Ducky. And so I ran into him for the first time in 20-odd years, and we looked at each other both went, Pretty in Pink, huh? I mean, who, <laughs> who knew? And, no, we had, I was shocked at the time that it was successful, let alone respected. But now, when you were making St. Elmo's Fire, you had to have a sense of, like, okay, this is something that's going to be sort of at least big at the moment. It was a great, huge cast. It was a, a script that had a sort of uh, a sort of ambition to it. You know, we're going to tell the big stories of life, of, you know, love and falling out of love and cheating and first jobs. And so, I mean, that one had a lot of ambitions, right? You, you saw that one coming, right? Not at all. That's completely wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, when, when San Amos Fire came out, it was... One critic summed it all up, and he said, this is a big chill wannabe that's a day late and a dollar short. I mean, none of those movies, except for Pretty in Pink, were you know, less than zero, you know, certainly Mannequin, certainly Weekend at Bernie's. And none of them were respected at the time in any kind of way. Less and than zero? Less than zero was a huge bomb when it came out. It was criticized for being, it's nothing like the book, it's way too depressing, and it made no money. It was gone in, I think, two weeks. I mean, I think those movies became so iconic because in that time period, it was the mid, mid and late 80s, that's when vi home video first really became available, and so people could take those movies home for the first time, and the people that were renting movies were young people who were going to those movies, and so suddenly, you could take us home and watch the movie 10, 15 times, whereas before that, people... You'd see a movie once, maybe twice, and then it'd be gone, and maybe you'd see it a year or two later on TV. But people took real possession of those movies in a way that I don't think people had ever been able to before that. And so I think that's what sort of launched them into their now sort of crazily iconic 
stature. Yeah, I mean, you know, St. Elmo's Fire, I know for me, I was a little younger than those people, maybe four or five years, so it was like, wow, like, this is what it feels like. You know, I, I remember going to see that probably first or second weekend, so whatever you got, I was part of that little group. I do remember when I was doing that movie, I thought this is a very good part for me, and because I would, it suited me very well. Yeah. I mean, it had a real sort of which I actually sort of this I still have in the book what I was still trying to solve is that ambivalence I, I love you but I'm pulling back I'm I want but I'm pulling back and that you know that was a that's sort of my life dilemma really and and sort of my my relation to success my relationship to people and the ones I love and anything it's that sort of wanting and then retreating so that part suited me very well and you were sort of the most genuine man I think in that group and the most vulnerable man and some of the other men around you uh, mistook that but the women understood like you know he's a real man because he is vulnerable and genuine well, I mean, that was my appeal at the time was being, you know, I've been going around talking on TV shows and now I'm seeing these clips from St. Elmo's Fire and Pretty in Pink and Mannequin again, and I haven't seen them in years. And I look at them and I see, and I can see with enough distance now the appeal that I had in that way, because whether the acting is very good or not, I'm not so sure, but there is a certain look in my eye that is so filled with wonder and excitement to be alive and trying to communicate this to you, that I love you. And you know, there, there was an unabashed and un, unprotected excitement and availability that I had, a quality that you, know, you only have in youth. You know, and, and there were enough people in those kind of movies that John Hughes particularly found, like Molly had that quality of just, I am alive in this moment right here and opening myself to you. And I think that's what those movies had. There wasn't that kind of, there was no distance from our emotions. And I mean, in Less Than Zero, you do that so well from the first moment, you're like, this is Gamora. I am leaving as soon as possible, even though there's this sort of real estate porn, car porn sort of thing going on. But you're like, you know, this is horrible. I'm getting out of here. I can't extricate myself just yet, but the moment I can, I'm out of here. We can see so much in your yeah, eyes. Yeah, well, that was, that was my feeling about sort of Los Angeles, too, at the time. And I think, I suppose, success was starting to come my way in a, in a very immediate, big way at that time. And I think, I mean, you captured exactly, and that's, that was a lot of the feeling that I had. I was fleeing very personally, very strongly from that kind of what was happening to me. You know, and so the movie had that, for me, my, my part in it had, was filled with that. And that was what I was living out personally at the time, too, so it couldn't help but come across. And you, I mean, you know, the ways that you affect people out of these, these iconic moments, you, you never even know. I remember, I think I saw it before I was able to drive, and I was like, so that's what I'm going to do, Mom. I'm going to, when I get my car, I'm going to take my jacket off and put it over the seat, and, then, and that's how I'm going to drive, because that's the way he does it in the movie, and it looks so cool. But, I mean, it becomes part of people's lives in these little small, granular ways that... And really, I took that coat off because the wardrobe person says, look, it's going to wrinkle if you sit on it, so just take it off, okay? <laughs> you know? And then they become these moments, you know? Is there anybody who wants to get involved in the conversation? Raise your hand. I see a question all the way over here to your right on the front yeah. row. Hello, um, I'm Anthony from England. It's an honor to speak to you. Um, I'm a huge fan, and uh, me and my brother, every year, we have a weekend at Bernie's weekend, and we watch the first one on the Saturday and then the second one on the Sunday. 
And uh, I just really want to know if, it's, if there's going to be a third one. Um, God, Terry I hope Cl not. Oh, why? <laughs> I, I hope so. I really <laughs> hope there's a third one. I think the body's decomposing, you know. <laughs> Terry um, Kaiser's written a script, though. He, uh, he wore the T-shirt for a baseball game the other day because the team uh, he threw a pitch for, they do the Bernie dance as their celebration. And yeah, the he Bernie has become this huge dance suddenly. It's this yeah. sort of dance craze 20 years later. It's very weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but Bernie has his own life. It's a weird thing. It, it, you know, truck drivers love Bernie. I can't walk down the street. I, I'd say once a day I get a truck driver you're leaning out his window going, Hey, where's Bernie? You know? <laughs> so it has its own sort of demographic, Bernie. And if you're watching, every, if you're doing a weekend at Bernie's weekend, I think it's good if you start drinking Friday and just keep drinking all the way through. It's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Always a good weekend. I mean, you know, I show my bias by talking about the more serious, emotional, melancholic films, but Weekend at Bernie's is a major thing. And, you know, it's good to just have fun sometimes when you're making a movie, when you're watching a movie. And that must have been just like, you know, we're just having a blast. That was a ball. I hadn't seen that movie in a long time, and someone asked me to do a live sort of tweet, tweet along with it. And so I did, and I... I hadn't seen it in, you know, 20 odd years, and I thought it was the stupidest thing I'd ever seen. I loved it. I thought it was just really funny. And when we were filming it, yeah, we had to, because there were no rules. It's like, okay, what if we, hey, what if he has a toupee and we just staple it on his head? Yeah, 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 okay. What if we throw him off the rail? Yeah, okay, good, let's do that. Well, now, what if the high tide comes and washes him out? You know, I mean, they were just making this stuff up on the day, which is, you know, and very rarely when you're doing a movie and it's a lot of fun and funny, is it actually fun and funny? Usually you're doing sort of the inside joke and it gets to be so inside that for people watching it's not funny anymore. But that movie somehow had its own weird trajectory that worked. Uh, next question, third row right here in front of you. Hi, um, in regards to your travels, do you feel that once you go to a place that you've sort of done it or do you feel like, have you ever been in, inclined to return to any particular place, and if so, where? The, the thing, I like to go somewhere for long enough until I get that feeling of that I somehow feel at home in myself there. And that can happen very quickly or it can take a while. And once I sort of achieve that feeling, and it could just be a quick sensation, it could be finally when I'm on the way to the airport and I have a conversation with the taxi driver, when I finally relax in a deep way in myself when I'm at a place, and then I don't necessarily feel the need to go back there ever again. So I like to have sort of micro homes around the world, just that, that sensation. Because I, I was just talking to someone and they were talking about roots and feeling where you belong. And I've lived in New York, I think, 32 years now, and I've never, f I've never said I'm a New Yorker. I would never say that. I don't have any roots here. I don't have any roots anywhere, I don't think. And so I, no roots at all? No, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and I've lived here for most of my life. And yet I don't feel attached to New York in any substantial way. And I don't think that's a bad thing, you know. And I don't yearn to have any particular roots anywhere. So I love the idea of feeling sort of at home in different spots around. That's sort of what I'm always, when I'm traveling, I'm never sort of seeking escape. I'm seeking at home everywhere, you know. But I, having said that, I go to Ireland a lot. My wife's from Ireland, so we go there a lot. And the more I go there, the less at home I feel. <laughs> do you have any, um, uh, as you look for the next question, do you have any I find myself a little apprehensive and have to sort of leap over the, the, the maw to go to a country where they don't speak English and I don't speak their language. And it's like, oh, this is going to be a lot harder than going to one of the many English-speaking countries. Well, I used to feel that way, I guess, but then I don't speak anything. I'm the ugly American. I mean, my, the way I speak any language is, hi, do you speak English? And 
people then just look at me and say no, and then we just carry on. So I don't, I would, I just don't let that stop me. You know, I just, it's another one of those things of, that's just anxiety and fear that I, I have it certainly, and I wish I could understand what they were saying often. Particularly if I'm writing a story when I need to get a quote, I need to find somebody who can translate for me. But I've, it, any t I've decided a long time ago I wasn't going to let fear stop me from doing things, particularly travel, but anything really. If, fear, if I discover that fear is the motivation for me not doing something, I, I am then going to do it. Next yeah. question's in the second row, right here in front of you as well. In your book, you talked about your trip down the Amazon and meeting a little girl named Doris who was ill, and everyone came together and you were able to get her an operation in Lima. Do you ever think that that was maybe your entire purpose for going on that trip to help that little girl? Yeah, it was a moment when we were, I was on a trip with, a. it was not a way I like to travel. I was with a group and I hate groups and I hate the idea of being trapped on a boat with a bunch of people. It was terrifying to me. It's just my worst nightmare. And so I was constantly judging everyone very harshly and thinking less of them and thinking I was better than them and all the normal things I would do if I were in, in a group of people I'm trapped in. And then suddenly, so we, I saw this little girl who had a very swollen tongue and it turned out she just needed a minor. We were very deep in the Amazon, days from any kind of anything. And it turned out she just needed a very simple operation to get a blood clot removed in her tongue. Otherwise, she was going to die because her tongue was so swollen she couldn't eat anymore and things. And so at the last night before we were leaving the boat, all these people who I judged so harshly and thought were just self-centered idiots came up to me and said, you know, that girl that you saw. Because none of them had seen her. Only I saw her, and I mentioned it once. And they all said, we'd like to help her. And so they all gave me their card and said, if you can get the owner of the boat to do anything, we'll, we'd like to help. And that just punctured my arrogance sort of better that, you know. So yes, all these people came together and helped this girl and they got her the operation that, and she's perfectly fine now. So I think I never, I think we never know how we affect people, you know, in that way. And I think you can just go around being as open-hearted and as kind as we can, although it's decidedly uncool. Um, then we never, it's none of our business how we affect people, you know, but I think that was a particularly um, nice moment to have, you know. Next question over here to your left. Hi there. Um, thanks for writing the book. Uh, read the review on Saturday in the Times, and then it was, I guess I would say, uncomfortably familiar. And so I guess my question to you is um, this story of um, growing up in this, you know, distant father, angry father and um, ending up, you know, running away, traveling and feel safest when you're traveling. Do you, are you having a lot of people come to you and sort of self-disclosing this is very familiar to you? you? Am I getting a lot of people coming to you? Yeah, yeah, they sort of start to, I've gotten a lot of emails in the last several days and people just sort of wanting to tell their story. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I mean, I, that's one of the great things. We tell our st story, the reason people tell stories is to connect. You know, that's always what I'm after. Some people like to want to figure out I heard Susan Orlean interviewed the other day, and she said behind every story is she wants to figure out the meaning. And meaning doesn't really matter to me. I'm interested in just that moment of connection. You know what I mean? So people, I've, I love that people come up and tell me their story suddenly. And particularly travel stories are an easy way to do it because they're couched in the exotic, and yet there's something very personal underneath it all. They talk about the time they were here, and it's all, they go through all the detail of the place, and then they finally get to the little nugget of what it was. 
And uh, yeah, I, I love that. You know, and it's interesting, particularly for someone like me who has had often a, a sort of fear of that kind of social uh, scenarios to find I'm most happy and alive when I have those sort of moments of connection like that. So yeah, people are starting to do that. It's nice. Next question, all the way to your right in the front row. Hi. Um, I was thinking that uh, for you, is it more about when you travel and when you say something punctured, you know, where you, how you felt about things? Was it more influenced by the place in terms of the environment or the people? Or did the environment create a situation where, you know, you found people that you might have found somewhere else? How, what really, really mattered to you? In going to a place? Yeah, and what made, when you said before that things, something punctured your exterior, let's say. Yeah, I, I'll go anywhere because I find, you know, part of this book takes place in Baltimore, and I'm like, Baltimore, really? Because I, I had to go write a story about Baltimore, and I'm like, really? And I had a, a very big experience in Baltimore. So it, it's always, it, place doesn't matter. I like going places I've never been because then I'm wide open and I'm, everything is new. It would be very difficult for me to write a travel story about New York, say, or because I'm very closed off to it in a certain way. And I'm closed off to in myself in New York in a but certain way. New York way. is so big you could discover a new New York. Yes, it would take a real active effort to do that. But I, I find whenever I'm in a, a far and alien place to me, and the more alien the better, I guess is my answer to that, because I'm more open and more open and more open. So I'm. If I'm 360 surrounded by openness, then it's easier for me. If I can keep up my defenses, which I will try and do at all costs at most times, I will do that. But the minute I have to just say, will you help me? No one's ever said no. And the minute I say, will you help me? I relax. And you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's something in saying, I'm human. I'm frail. Can you help me? I've never not been received. You know, even if I'm at home and I'm having a fight with my wife, I just stop and I can you help me? It's like, never has anyone said no. And so I, try, I guess I try and find, I wait, I go as far away as I can till I get to whatever it takes in me that relaxes enough to say, can you help me, you know? I think um, you walk around as a normal person and then, no, I don't. And then, well, the, well, then somebody encounters you and they're like, you're Andrew McCarthy and then that other thing Comes yeah, and in, then right? that sort of wall the, comes the, up. And yeah, then, then, I, you, <laughs> yeah. well, then you have the baggage that you deal with, right? Their memories of you, their imagined you, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think about, I went to uh, Senegal and to this tiny village where it was like, you know, goats and thatched huts. And I, I remember on the wall of somebody's hut, there was a little sticker of Leonardo DiCaprio. Like uh, this far out, you know, in the wild of Am the Amazons and Africa, whatever, and Leo has penetrated there. And I wonder if you ever, like, you know, go sort of the end of the world, and then somebody's like, it's pretty pink or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's happened to me. I remember years and years ago, I was in Berlin when the wall fell. And it's not the end of the world, but it was a very strange one. I was, it was in Berlin, 1989, I guess. And it was chaos. And it was the middle of the night, and the wall was coming down, and the people were storming the wall, and I was just sort of there. I was acting in a movie, and I was there. And I was at the wall, and this soldier is pushing people back, and I'm just sort of there, and I'm caught up in the crowd. And he's pushing everyone back with his gun away from the wall. And he sort of sees me, and he goes, you! What have I, oh, sorry, and he pulls me out, and I'm like, oh my God, what have I, and he goes, heaven help us. I'm like, yeah, and he goes, come with me, and he brought me inside, and so I've had, a, I've had, 
you know, lots of experiences where it's happened. But just, uh, you reminded me of something. I had, you know, people, someone comes and recognizes me, and then you put up that armor. I was on the subway the other day, and this woman is sitting across from me, and I was way downtown, and I'm going uptown, and this woman is sitting across, and she's starting to give me the look. I'm like, hi. So we nod, and I smile, and then try and look away and not let my feelers still looking at me, and I, keep, I look back, and I nod again and smile. And I'm like, wow, I've got another 50 blocks. Okay, um, and... So anyway, she gets up finally to get off the train, and she's coming course like, okay, now we're going to have the chat, and it's going to talk about pretty and pink, and I'll smile, and it'll be fine, and she'll get off. And she comes up to me and says, you know, I just want you to know, and I'm, yes, hi. And she goes, I want you to know, my, my husband died two months ago, and this is the first time I've smiled. I was like, instantly, both tears spring to both our eyes and we're hugging on the subway. And she misses her stop because we're hugging and it's, it was a wonderful moment, you know? And I mean, that's the sort of gift that comes with it all. And we're so, I'm so used to sort of that protection and that's, you know, I think we spend our life trying to sort of get rid of that protection. Right. You know, I do anyway. I felt a need for it so much when I was young and I've spent the lifetime and I think that's what travel and sort of the book is about is sort of getting rid of that protection. We have time for two more questions. I have one right here and then in the middle of the theater. So. Great. Hi. I was just hoping that maybe you'd comment on the fact that for most people, and I just speak generally, going out of your comfort zone is something that involves traveling or being in an uncomfortable place. But for you, you're com- uh, you know, going out of your comfort zone is embracing the familiar. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk about maybe like why that is. And even now, I just think it's interesting because some of the discussions that you guys have had have mentioned going out of your comfort zone and still associated with being in a foreign country. But I don't really think that's true for you. Um, and I don't think that's true for some of us. But it's just being okay and being content with where you are. That's the, the more difficult thing. Yeah, okay. What about it? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, it's true. I'm, I'm most comfortable and happiest when I'm on the go. And I'm, uh, and I'm about to go. Um, w- my wife will often say to me, as, as the day I'm leaving, I'm just so incredibly solicitous and kind to her. And she goes, oh, don't give me all this nice now that you leave. Just go on. You know, because, yes, the idea of sort of being in place and sticking around and is, I find, more difficult. And I, you know, I have to. It's not like I'm on the road all the time. I mean, I have a life and I love these people. It's just a constant... I have the wanderlust thing, and it's easy to justify because it's, you know, I write about it, so I've got to go. But I, I do find sort of sticking around more challenging than going, yeah. Do you love coming back? Sorry? Do you love coming back? I love coming. My favorite place is coming across the bridge. I used to live downtown for years, and my favorite moment of travel was coming across the Williamsburg Bridge. I loved that feeling. Now I love coming across the Triborough Bridge. There's nothing like coming over the hill and seeing the city. I love that feeling of coming home. It's the best part of any trip I have. The minute I get in the door, I'm often like, oh, man, what a drag. Now I have to empty the dishwasher. And, but the, the excitement of sort of I've made it back is thrilling to me. Hi. Um, You said that you kind of stay in uh, every spot until you feel like you're at home. Has there ever been a place where you haven't felt at home? You just couldn't get that feeling that you need to be able to leave and not return? Or there's some place that just struck you in such a wrong way that you didn't want to try and break through that mold to find a place where you were comfortable to say, I've had this experience, I can move on. Yeah, I mean, some places I just give up on, you know, or give up on me and the place. It's always me. It's never the place, you know. It's always me and how I am. 
you know, and I've, I've often gone places for stories that I've had to write about that I had no connection with at all. And I, but it was really just me in that place at that time. If I were to go back another time, I'd have an amazing experience, you know. I go to Ireland all the time now. The first time I went to Ireland, I felt at home in this incredible way 25 years ago. And it took me a long time to get back to that feeling, you know. So it's always, it's always my reaction to anything, never the place, you know. But some places inherently we're just connected to. Don't you arrive somewhere and you kind of go, yeah, I get this place, yeah. you yeah, know. Definitely. And some places you don't have that with, and, you know, that's okay. So... Uh Let's thank Andrew McCarthy for coming and talking about travel and movies. Thank and you. it's been lovely. Thank you very much.